An unknown force is calling me. Perhaps the voice of that star perched on the last height. Perhaps the desire to see the spaces that conceal Europe. Helene de Ottingen. Welcome to Warfare, Advancement, and Revisionism. My name is Preston Floyd, and I am, as always, your host. Well, I hope everyone has continued to listen and enjoy the show. Um, I've launched the site, or um, the feed on a couple of other websites in the last couple of weeks that have come up, kind of piecemeal, Stitcher, uh, and the like. And I have gotten a little bit of extra feedback from that, and I just want to kind of thank everyone on those sites who found me there, or for those that maybe have been listening on older sites and uh, maybe shared the newer links. Um, But uh, kind of to go back on a little bit of feedback, uh, just kind of as a general series, I did have someone bring up the fact that uh, I have stopped kind of titling my episodes, you know, kind of based on the content and more just on like the time period and the location. Um, And they think it would be a better idea if I went back to kind of titling things a little bit um, more, I guess, artistically, (laughs) for lack of a better term. and I do plan on doing that uh, again. Um, just it's kind of I find titles just to be like the most tedious. Like I've I can actually take quite a while to think of them up, believe it or not. Um, and sometimes I just do it just as a last minute thing. And I figured since there's not really a whole lot of um, great stories, like individual stories, it's kind of harder to do that for this kind of stuff. But um, I might, after the next couple of episodes, try to start um, start that process of uh, titling them a little bit more, um, I guess, um, again, artistically. I, I don't think that's a great choice for it, but I, I'm, that's what I'm going to try to do. So um, I do thank for that feedback, and uh, it has been something I have been thinking about, and it's nice to actually hear someone, but if um, anyone else has any thing to say that might not be accurate, please do let me know. Uh, But for now, let's go ahead and get to the meat of this episode. I have a feeling it's going to be a little bit of a long one. So, uh, last week we finished up uh, the remaining little portion of Southeast Asia and then went to Oceania. Uh, This week we're going to kind of be going into Europe. Uh, And this section will probably be two weeks. I'm going to kind of go through everything I have and then see where we are at time. And then I may cut the episode and then, you know, go ahead and record the second part for next week. Um, But we'll see. (laughs) So let's go ahead and get on into it. Now, and as always, as I always remind everyone on these at the start of these episodes, um, just to kind of touch base and redefine what we're discussing. Uh, this is going to include everything west of the Ural Mountains and the Anatolian Peninsula and the north of Africa and Africa's immediate Mediterranean coast. Uh, we will also be including the British Isles in this as well as part of Europe. I know that's sometimes a controversy, but you know, we'll get into that well into the future. Now, Europe at this period is not nearly as well populated as, you know, the regions of Asia or Africa, and probably only slightly more populated than Oceania or the Americas. Um, and 
it's important to remember that the Holocene has just or is just beginning at this time and most of the ice and glacier coverage to the north and around the mountains in Europe are still affecting inhabitants and you know that doesn't just include humans that includes animal life as well so I'm going to go over this region uh, um, or I should say I'm going to have a lot more to go over in this region due to me being able to find a lot more research being available in English it's not because I think that this is you know better than the other places we've been talking about it's just easier for me to find sources to kind of go over and we'll we'll get into a lot more similar cultures that we're going to discuss this week and uh, back when we when we next return to the Middle East and Africa and Asia but um, Europeans have been digging Europe up for a little bit longer than they were digging up other countries and the they're still digging up other countries but it's usually in partnership these days with the local countries and uh, sometimes getting the sources translated is not as quite as easy or as quickly but uh, so just bear with me and uh, again this is probably gonna be a little bit more in-depth than what we've had the last couple of weeks but all that said it's still you know we're still missing a lot of the picture here now for the humans that are living at this time there are two broad genetic groups that we have evidence of and they occupied very large ranges in Europe <clears throat> but it's important to keep in mind that some of what we're talking about is going to be a generalization of these peoples up until this point um, the areas between them and their kind of borderlands saw some levels of intermixing trade and conflict and that should you know, it should go without saying that there was also internal differences in each of these genetic groups as well. And uh, just uh, the two genetic groups are referred to as the Western hunter-gatherers and the Eastern hunter-gatherers. And as you can guess from their names, they're named for where they primarily occupy, occupied in Europe. That said, that said, they lived in what is today um Excuse me. Oh. Sorry about that. I thought I muted my phone. Give me one moment. I'm going to redo that. Okay. Do apologize. Um, yes. So, the, as you can guess from the name of the Western hunter-gatherers, lived in Western Europe. Uh, they have been found uh, all the way from... Iberia to Hungary. Uh, the Western hunter-gatherers are the oldest group of Homo sapiens to occupy Europe, and they were probably the ones that had the most interactions and interbreeding with Neanderthals uh, just in general. Anyone with any European descent is related to these peoples in some small way. Although this, the amount of this ancestry is a small part of you know current peoples, very small percentage just due to their relatively small numbers um, and what from what we can see based on their DNA these people had darker skin and hair but oddly enough they had blue eyes or at least the genetic mutation uh, for blue eyes to appear uh, and to kind of you know 
kind of clarify on this that I haven't really gone into too much here, but um, and before I kind of get too far ahead talking about other people, uh, humans up to this point in time have had mostly black or darker brown skin. Uh, this came about due to us evolving without hair in the tropics and equatorial regions of Africa. And having darker skin prevents more damage from UV radiation, you know, sunburn, sunburn basically. And as we moved out of this region or, or those regions and began to inhabit more northerly or even very far southerly climes, um, you know, you have slightly less exposure to direct sunlight. And of course, we're beginning to wear clothes and leathers, you know, the, the further out you know, we are from warmer weather. When it's cold, we do have to bundle up to survive. So essentially, um, with less direct, uh, uh, with less exposure to direct sunlight, this meant our dark skin is no longer a benefit. It's not a negative, but it is basically a benign trait. It provides no uh, inherent benefit for survival. Um, but if humans are inhabiting an area where it's hard to come by sources of vitamin D, which we can pull from levels of sun, um, you know, if our diet per se, like we can't get regular sources of vitamin D, uh, darker skin is a little bit of a detriment, at least as time goes by. You know, you begin to lose um, bone density, that kind of thing. And... Uh, if you don't live in a place with a lot of direct sunlight and you don't have a lot of access to vitamin D, uh, you obviously run the risk of becoming vitamin D deficient. And if your skin is too dark, you have no, you know, and no food source that's going to cause a problem as time goes on. Now, a larger number of Western hunter-gatherers were concentrated in areas around the Mediterranean Sea, uh, and they weren't exactly living a sedentary indoor life yet so it makes sense for their skin to be dark and it's probably not quite as dark as those people still living in Africa or the people even in the Middle East uh, at least you know the ones closer to Africa um, but it's not what you would call white today it, it, it's slightly lighter than those uh, people further uh, to further south and southwest but it is it is still fairly dark. Now, as time goes on, incentive spreads, and then a you know a switch to an agricultural lifestyle causes a further shift to lighter and whiter skin tones in these northerly climes. Now, as for eye color, um, blue, gray, green eyes, indeed all eye colors, these are, mutations are considered to be polygenic, and that means that they happen because of a combination of several other genes that you have and that includes skin color so uh, meaning you may have the genes for blue eyes but unless you also have a certain combination of several other genes you will not have blue eyes uh, this is also true for gray or green eyes uh, and there's also a level of environmental influence on you know this as well you will see sometimes children uh, very young with blue eyes and they'll shift to a darker color um, and this is just due to you know um, your, your eyes aren't actually the color that you see them as. It's just like a certain kind of uh, level of melanin that affects, you know, how light's refracted and all that kind of stuff. I'm not a scientist, so I'm not going to bother explaining that in detail, but just kind of keep that in mind. Um, 
also another part of this, or at least the theory that this has been for, put forward, uh, is that this mutation for lighter colored eyes entered our gene pool after we interbred with Neanderthals, who were lighter skin because again they were living in far northerly colder climes and didn't have as much access to vitamin D um, and they evolved in Eurasia you know they were a, uh, a branch off from an earlier hominid species and they are they were native to Europe and Asia so uh, they didn't need quite the darker skin that we needed in Africa and after we developed uh, blue gray and green eyes uh, you know as time goes by but we're not sure the exact order that happened it can't truly say I think um, you know, we started with almost completely black or brown and then um, they got to kind of an amber and hazel and then they would you know slowly kind of evolve from that uh, the second major lineage in Europe we have are the eastern hunter-gatherers uh, these people are located between the lands west of the Ural Mountains, up into and around the Dnieper River, uh, the eastern Baltic coasts, uh, and the steppes around the Black Sea or the Black Lake, as it probably still is at this time, and the northern half of the Caspian Sea. And the current DNA evidence shows that these people were a combination of a group that was probably... Uh, an offshoot of the ancestors of the Western hunter-gatherers. So, like, you know, they split off from, you know, they had that their original European group, and they split into two halves. And the, the ancestors of the Eastern group uh, combined with a smaller uh, portion of ancient North Eurasian populations. Uh, these, these were the ancestors of the peoples of the steppe, and also uh, the, the people that would eventually inhabit uh, the Americas and parts of uh, Northern Asia in the East. Um, at, and from what DNA tells us, most of these people carry the genes for lighter skin, but dark hair and brown eyes, uh, but with some possibility for lighter colors. So uh, at least they carried those genes, we'll say. Uh, there is a final group of ancient Europeans that I, I should mention. I, I debated whether or not to include them in this episode or not. But uh, it's the Scandinavian hunter-gatherers. Uh, I mentioned that the areas between the western and eastern groups saw levels of intermixture. And these people emerge from that due to their long-term proximity. Uh, they will emerge in Scandinavia as the remaining ice sheets retreat from northern Europe. Uh, the Eastern Hunter Gatherers will get to that area from the north uh, by going through Karelia, which is in modern day uh, Finland and Russia. And then they would follow along the coastlines uh, and then start to move south from northern uh, Norway and Sweden. And then uh, you have the Western Hunter Gatherers, and they will get there from the south and the western Baltic. So these two groups combine in kind of the central Scandinavian peninsula, and from their interactions, they will form the Scandinavian hunter-gatherers. Uh, and this process has not started just yet, due to the that younger Dryas cold snap for you know that that period of time. Uh, but but by the time we get back here to Europe, um, 
they will have emerged and their DNA shows that they would inherit kind of the lighter skin of the Eastern hunter-gatherers and the lighter eye color possibilities for the Western hunter-gatherers. So uh, if you think uh, big, burly, blonde-haired, blue-eyed people in Scandinavia, it's because of these two groups kind of coming together and intermixing. Now, uh, I'm going to go into the kind of material cultures that existed in 10,000 BC, kind of across these regions. And uh, again, keep in mind that all these groups are not a monoculture in the regions we're talking about. They probably coexisted with a couple of other groups that we have almost, you know, that we have no evidence or artifacts of. Um, also, of the cultures I'm going to talk about, there is probably some level of overlap between them. Um, it's very possible that a site we might consider as part of one group because of tools might have actually been a part of another group, either linguistically, religiously, culturally, like, you know, uh, but the tools they used were better suited to the environment. So, you know, it is also possible some groups in the same culture are not closely related to another in the same material culture. And also, all these material complexes show at least some level of continuing development and regression in several fields over time. And what they are, um, you know, uh, and what they, what and how they were living off of, uh, these changed as well. These are not unchanging monolithic groups. They're, they're constantly evolving, much like ourselves. So, uh, one of the largest spread cultures uh, at this period is that of the Magdalena culture. And they're named for a site that was found in the Abri de la Madeleine in the southwest uh, of modern-day France. And sites with tools and materials that, you know, kind of match up with that have been found all along the Iberian coasts up through France and then even through kind of a curve around the Alps and the other mountains that kind of divide um, Italy from Germany and France and Austria and all that little area. Uh, so, you know, it's got a very long range over most of Western Europe. And this is a very long-lasting material cultural. Uh, there, there are similar sites that have been found, you know, between a 5,000-year period, give or take. And they outlisted several other cultures that they bordered. Uh, some of which were probably, you know, they, were, they probably gave birth to cultures and still outlasted them. So they seem to have had um, an especially rich culture compared to a lot of their neighbors, or at least, you know, the ones that I could find documentation on. And these people are the probable creators of the earliest found uh, thaumatrope, that uh, little optical illusion uh, device I mentioned all those episodes ago, the one that would show like a, a bird in motion at one end and then a bird in motion, like with a separate motion of the other, and you would just kind of flip it back and forth really rapidly. Um, that's the example I used. I, I'm obviously not sure exactly what the image shown is on the one that was found. Um, they are also ones that painted the earliest representation of musical instruments. I think like a stringed bow, almost, that they have found. Um, 
so you know unfortunately we don't have the instrument but we've seen pictures of the instrument so we know that they had you know something like that um unfortunately for these people at this point in time uh this culture is about to kind of break apart for the final time if it hasn't already you know this is basically at a collapse point uh, these people were prolific hunters of mostly reindeer uh, but some other herd animals and so as the climate is warming in the southern parts of their traditional territory uh, these reindeer are going to be either completely dying off or leaving this part of Europe and going to more of the central uh, northern climes. Uh, so uh, yeah, central, northern, and eastern Europe, um, they're going to have kind of a reemergence of tundra conditions because of the younger driest period. Uh, so you know, a sizable portion, I would imagine, of the Magdalena population is kind of going to break away from this kind of like at least well-documented core of their territory in the south to kind of follow traditional their traditional favored reindeer and uh, that kind of thing so now in addition to various types of bones and ivory carvings these people are also the ones connected to the cave paintings of places like uh, Altamira, Altamira in Spain um, there's also evidence that these um, these people practiced uh, cannibalism. Uh, not to say that that's unique for humans. In fact, there are quite a few locations that do, but they have found a decent amount of bones. Um, they have you know, found bones with standard butchering marks and um, they've been opened up to get marrow out of it. Uh, and there is some evidence of skull caps you know, having like the faces broken off from the skulls and then the the caps for them being used as some type of vessel holding either um, uh, ochre or some type of dyes or paints anything like that as well as I'm sure they could have used it for liquid now it is not known if this was done for all human dead enemy dead or just make maybe family members like close family members uh, Unfortunately, we don't have a way to know. And uh, the breakup of the Magdalene, uh, Magdalenians will kind of contribute to several neighboring groups. Uh, they'll basically kind of uh, contribute to the growth and uh, development of these, outs of these other groups on their periphery. And one of those neighboring cultures that shared some similarities and even occupied some of the same sites though at different times uh, than the Magdalenian, is the Azilian. And this culture um, basically kind of becomes distinct around 15,000 years ago. Uh, and these groups occupy kind of the northern mountains and valleys of the kind of Iberian Peninsula and southern France. Um, their name comes from Le Mas des Îles, which is in the south of France. And they would have been very close neighbor to the Magdalenians, at least in the, in the Magdalenians' eastern ranges. Uh, these people are also hunting reindeer and the like, and they do so with kind of like micro blades that are very similar, you know, to the Magdalenian uh, way that they produce tools. Uh, this is also known as a tool industry, by the way, so you may see that sometime in literature. 
Um, but they don't have nearly as much evidence of them producing bone and ivory carvings that are unique. Uh, in fact, what art they are producing is actually mostly painted pebbles. And they have a, like a lot of um, designs done with dots and lines. Uh, specifically, zigzag lines is a very popular uh, pattern for them. And they would paint these pebbles with things like ochre, crushed, oxidized iron flakes. You know, they would see kind of these reddish dust kind of on rocks and they would kind of scrape it off and then like smash it with um, mortar or pestle, something along those lines. And then they would also crush scallop shells and make kind of a darker black or dark purple maybe um, paint with that. Uh, now some people have put forward the idea that this is kind of a rudimentary form of uh, pictographic writing or possibly an expression of some kind of religious religion or mythology. Um, I don't think the writing explanation, uh, I think that's impossible, pretty much. I, there's, there's no way to get anything from that. Um, now, for the religious explanation, I think that's a little bit more possible. I think there could be something to that. Um, but, of course, even if either option is true, we don't have a reference point to decipher any of their meetings and any kind of religious or mythological story they're telling. Like, you know, there's it would be so you know, steeped in just like cultural understanding. Yeah, there, there's no way for us to kind of get anything out of that. Uh, and of course, there are those that say the Azelian is actually an early breakaway from the Magdalena and not just a neighbor group. Um, I'm inclined to believe that they that that is the case. Um, uh, but whatever they were exactly, um, they hung around a little bit longer than the Magdalena uh, or Magdalenian. Excuse me. Um, they they last to about 8,000 BC is when you kind of see their culture kind of break up or disappear. Now, to the north of the Magdalenian is the is a relatively new culture. It's the Arensberg culture, and this group became extinct right around, or I'm sorry, became distinct around the start of the Younger Dryas, and will end at around the time, the same time. In fact, almost exactly around the same time. Uh, so they exist around nine centuries uh, at this point. So about 2,900 BC. And they're going to last till about 11,700, give or take, you know, 100 years or so, possibly less than that. And they, of course, the name comes from Arensberg, Germany. And I'm sure I'm butchering that pronunciation the same way I did those other places in France. Please forgive me. Um, this culture kind of emerges a couple of hundred years after the end of two earlier cultures in regions that overlap with Arensberg territory. Uh, the Hamburgian and the Fetimesser cultures. And there is a debate about how much these material cultures were actually distinct from the Magdalenian. Uh, the Hamburgian in particular were also prolific hunters of reindeer. But as, but as they kind of disappeared at this point in time, I don't have to get into that debate, thankfully. Maybe uh, maybe in a future episode I'll come back and kind of re-go over some of this stuff Um some of these groups we kind of skirted over in our rush to get to kind of a little bit more verifiable time frame. But 
maybe that's a future future Preston problem. So the Arensberg group inhabited what is now Belgium, the Netherlands, Germany, the very south of Denmark, and parts of western Poland. Uh, and they seem to have had a combination of tools designed and manufactured along lines of all three of these groups, or at least very close to parts of these groups. Um, so this kind of suggests to me a group that's banding together out of need rather than a common background of or culture. Um, this part of Europe saw kind of a rapid deforestation after, you know, um, or at least a rapid deforestation of Northern Europe with the return of ice sheets in Scandinavia and the Northern British Isles. Uh, and the Northern European plain would have been tundra or close enough to it to not really matter. Um, but these people kept living in this region despite, you know, all the hardships this had to have brought. Um, and it's important to remember that, you know, it becoming a tundra is not just changing, um, you know, vegetation that you can get. It's also ch changing a fuel uh, that you can get for fires and cooking. Remember, these people don't have the clay pots that um, the Chinese do for, you know, making stew or anything like that. So, uh, yeah, so again, uh, probably due to a combination of factors such as um, cultural love or appreciation of hunting reindeer and other Arctic animals and the sudden loss of vegetation to gather food and fire fuel from and, of you know, of course, good old-fashioned survival. These are all good reasons to band together and kind of you know, make a, a new group to live with. Um, and the rapid end of the Younger Dryas and return of a more temper, uh, temperate climate, you know, and it happens and kind of has an equally rapid end of the Arensbergian. <laughs> That's a mouthful. Aren Arensbergian culture. And that suggests that this was more of a union of survival rather than anything else. Um, not That is not to say that you know these groups broke apart because they hated each other, but they probably broke apart for survival reasons. You know, probably broke apart for the same reason they joined together. Um, while the climate being more temperate, you know, I mean, sorry, excuse me, with the climate being more tippet, the numbers of large reindeer and things like saiga antelope herds probably plummeted and, you know, vegetation returned. Uh, I imagine smaller bands um, would drain uh, resources slower. Uh, so I also kind of imagine that some groups may not have wished to chase the reindeer into the brutal colder climate of Northern Europe when they could just stay in an area with more guaranteed food sources and, um, you know, supplemental vegetarian fare. Uh, and they could of course continue hunting smaller animals like hares or foxes, um, with the occasional lone red deer or boar, um, you know, just something like that. So yeah, the Arensburgian, they probably banded, banded together, for, you know, or probably formed just due to the more brutal climate and then broke apart when they, you know, 
they didn't need to stay together anymore, basically. It was a very much a uh, form, uh, cultural convenience, I guess, to form up. At least that's my theory. Um, who knows? They, they, maybe they'll find some evidence to show they hung around another 2,000 years or so. Uh, now, um, there is another kind of group uh, that's on the periphery of all of these other groups. The Magdalenian, the Hamburgian, the Fettermesser, and the Arensberg. Uh, and this culture is the Cresswell culture. Uh, it lasted from around, around 1,200 years and occupied southern England and Wales till about 9800 BC, so about 200 years after this point. And this culture has similarities with, all, again, all the cultures I mentioned at various times. And they have goods, including amber from the Baltic, from, you know, from the continent. So they, have, they actually have trade relations, quite, you know, very wide-ranging trade relations. Um, and some people have put forward that this culture was, should be considered an extension of the Hamburgian or Fettermesser. Uh, and even then, the Ahrensberg culture, uh, due to them using very similar tool-making processes, uh, but they're making it with local, like, English and Welsh material. Uh, but when the younger Dryas, um, just kind of what these people were dealing with at this time, the younger Dryas began, and yet yeah, most of northern England and Scotland becomes an Arctic tundra. And it couldn't really be occupied for any serious stretch of time, if at all. Um, but, you know, this Tantra would have been inviting to a lot of different uh, animals that they would have enjoyed hunting, or at least known a lot about hunting. Uh, there would have been a decent number of not just reindeer, but uh, horses even. Red deer, saiga antelope, uh, things like that. And it seems like the Cresswell broke apart in England just before the Ironsburg did. Um, that is not to say that, you know, England was abandoned, but it probably just saw a breakup of the groups that had been living there and kind of developing their own independent identities. So it is possible, you know, maybe England was a little bit quicker to return to more temperate climates or, you know, they had to leave for other reasons and yeah, or at least there wasn't kind of that connective force between them and the further um, uh, eastern part of Europe. Uh, oh, I should also talk about Ireland. Um, humans had been there uh, at various times in the past, but there's no evidence of permanent occupation until about 8000 BCE. Um, so they, they probably went there maybe on some hunting expeditions, probably came in from like um, have an ice bridge between Northern Ireland and uh, Northern England or Southern Scotland. Uh, but there's, you know, there's not really been found any kind of tool making culture there. It's just like kind of refuse and a few light like uh, butchered bone kind of deals. Um Oh, yes. Also, I didn't mention this, but all these people are making tents to some degree. In addition to having cave sites that they would uh, gather in, they would also all have decent tent-making technology. So, <sighs> And that's kind of the main thrust for Western and Central Europe up to this point. And let's see where we are. 
let's let's see. It's a little after 35 minutes. Um, let's keep going for a little while longer here. So again, Western, Eastern, or I'm sorry, Western and Chinsor Europe has been covered. Uh, so in the East, the primary culture that exists at this time is the Epigravedian. Uh, and I should note that this is not a term that is 100% agreed on. Another term you may see for this culture is the uh, Tardigravedian. Uh, epi is a kind of a Greek prefix and it means above. So it means above or on top of the Gravedian. Uh, Tarde is, in this case, it's an Italian prefix, and it means late or later Gravedian. Uh, and what the Gravedian is, it's kind of considered to be, by most people, to be the last kind of unified culture uh, or material culture in Europe. Uh, and it replaced an earlier culture known as the Aran, uh, I'm going to butcher the pronunciation, but I'm going to give it a shot. Agrignacian. Uh, which is, some consider that to be kind of like a, kind of a combination of like the last Neanderthals and the first humans kind of meeting up. But uh, that's kind of like murky. I, I didn't really get as much information on them. So take that with a grain of salt. But basically the Gravedian is like two or three cultures back um and yeah so the gravedian sea splits before it disappears around 2400 years ago um, one of the gravedian groups created the earliest found ceramic figures that we talked about um, it's like a venus figure it's in a place in uh, what is now the uh, chechia um, but again that's a ceramic figure it's not a bowl or a pot used for cooking it's just decorative or possibly religious um, the Magdalenian is a successor to the Sultrian, which was a splinter group of the Gravedian. So, um, now around 20,000 years ago, the Epigravedian kind of forms in Italy. And it is a very successful material culture. It spreads uh, and occupies parts of uh, the Balkans, the Greece. Uh, kind of the very, very southeast of France. Uh, so they're bordering up on the Magdalenian parts. And then to the east, they get to the kind of the western half of the Black Lake or Black Sea. Uh, they're in the Ukraine, Belarus, and western Russia up to, I believe, the Volga River, I think is where the kind of the furthest sites I've seen that they've been in. And it continues to last in various locations uh, until around 8,000 BCE. So it's a it's an even longer lasting culture than the Magdalenian. Um, of course, that is not to say it lasts in all of those locations. Uh, and because of the long time frame, the Epigravedian is subdivided based on you know changes that they go over through time. Uh, and at this period, we are in the final Epigravedian stage. And this period is mostly defined as happening between 12,000 to 8,000 BCE. Um, yeah, so uh, they're not in all of these places that I talked about at the same time, but that's kind of where they were kind of at their maximum range. At this point, um, you'll probably start to see, you know, break off in splinter cultures all over. 
and I think that that is a good place to end it. Um, I think a little cliffhanger there. Uh, next week we will finish up with Europe. It's going to be probably a little bit uh, shorter episode for that one. Uh, but we're going to go over a couple of those um, early splinter groups um, of the Epigravedian in the East. Um, so I hope you all look forward to that. Um, yeah, but I think I will be um, just go ahead and record that after this one. Um, so if you do have feedback, please send it to me at our email, uh, waradrevpod at gmail.com. Or you can contact me via direct message on Twitter, um, where I will include a link in the episode descriptions. Uh, yeah, so I'd like to thank everyone for listening. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed. Uh, again, next week we're going to go over those split-off cultures, and I may talk about what's going to happen, because we are finishing up with the old world. It may be a good time to kind of focus our energies uh, to what's going to happen there in our next time period. Uh, we're going to jump forward a little bit in the old world to about 8000 B.C., course that'll be a little ways off because we are still going to cover north and south america i'm still doing uh, some scripting for those episodes so please look forward to those uh but yeah i hope everyone had a good evening i hope you've enjoyed this extra long episode and if you have any feedback please reach out but i'd like to thank you all and i hope you have a good rest of your day goodbye <laughs>